I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at you, I didn't. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Handmade, the making podcast with real talk about materials. I'm your host, Anna Pajajski, and this episode I talk to Dr. Nate Adams. Nate is a biochemist researcher working in a lab looking at chlorophyll, the stuff in plants responsible for photosynthesis. He's also a science communicator and has worked with people like the BBC doing radio, TV and live science shows. But today we're not going to be talking about any of that. We're going to be talking about something entirely different. As you'll hear, Nate is also an aerial circus performer. And so in this episode, we talk about the materials which he uses in those circus performances, which are called silks. This conversation was recorded during the UK coronavirus lockdown. And I started by asking Nate how he got into circus performing. Four years ago, um, I sort of secretly started doing circus training. It was more to get me out of the pub on a Friday night. Um, and, and I had like the secret goal when I was a th- I turned 30 and I'd never been able to climb a rope. You know, those PE lessons where the teacher shouts at you, climb the rope, climb the rope, climb the rope. Yeah. But, but they never really tell you how to do it. And I, I was the fat kid that could never climb the rope. And it was always very depressing. So I sort of set myself a goal that when I was 30, I'd be able to climb a rope. And now I can, I think I've got at least 20, 25 different ways of climbing a rope. So nice. I succeeded. Um, <laughs> Massively over succeeded, some would say. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, I, I kind of fell in love with it. Um, I did it for a couple of years, just as a sort of casual thing. And then I think two years ago, I sort of upped my training a little bit and... I moved to a different place where I trained, basically, which was a bit more hardcore, so where professionals train. And there's a really good community in Sheffield. Sheffield has a pretty intense aerial community. There's two training centers here. And then they encouraged me to get my own equipment. So for Christmas, I got my own silks. And then I just did it more and more. And then I fell in love with rope. So I bought ropes. And then last November, I went to circus school for a month, which was the best thing I've ever done in the view to sort of move towards more professional performing. Um, and then just before lockdown, I'd done a couple of professional shows. I was in conversations about moving into a more professional world, a circus. And then lockdown happened and, you know, 
if you're a freelance performer, you, you've got nothing at the moment. So it's a bit of a weird time. <laughs> but yeah. on the other side, we'll see what happens. I find your story so inspiring that you went from your childhood trauma of not being able to climb a rope on demand <laughs> to yeah. essentially like taking it professional full time. And it sounds like it was, you know, it's become the dream that so many people don't pursue because of work commitments and, you know, career paths and all of this. But I find it really inspiring to hear your story about how you found I, the thing I mean, that you I, loved and you went and did it. I, I really specifically went part-time to train more in circus. And that's because I've got a very supportive husband as well who allowed me to do that. But yeah, definitely went part-time so I could spend more time in the gym. That's so is, cool. Yeah, and I mean, I love it. It's the most um, relaxing thing you can do. I think, you know, as scientists, we've, we, I don't know about you, but you, your brain is always turned on and you're constantly thinking and it's very hard to turn off from work. But when you have to support your body weight in midair and work out how to move your body around, there's nothing else you can focus on. Mm. So I think just like diving is a really relaxing activity to many people, I think the same is true with um, aerial because you just cannot be distracted by random thoughts. So it's definitely a relaxation thing for me as well as just something I love. Yeah, I think I do. I do a similar thing with swimming, except without the peril. I'm quite scared of heights, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, also, I have no fear of heights. That's my big problem. That is um, a superpower, actually. Scares. No, <laughs> and, like, so when, you know, my, my other half, my husband, does have a fear of heights, and when he sees me do stuff, he's just terrified. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, it's fine. And, you know, I do a two-finger hang or something like that, and he's like, can oh, you man. please hold on with more fingers? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> if you need me to, but no. <laughs> oh, amazing. Well, this is probably yeah. one of the less conventional uh, sort of links to a material that we've had on the podcast. Um, but I love that your passion is, what would you call it, aerial? Uh, well, it's it's either aerial circus or... Ah, right, or, okay, aerial well, circus. Well, it's aerial circus, but then my passion is vertical, so it's where you go up and down. So there's verticals and horizontals. So the horizontals are trapeze and lyra or hoop, and then ah. there's verticals, which is the silks and the cordelis which is the rope. Ah, oh, cool. Okay. Well, in any case, we've never had a circus performer on the podcast talking about their circus materials. So this is extremely exciting and I'm I'm kind of obsessed with this with this um connection that we've made between circus and materials. So the stuff that we're talking about today, you've mentioned it um just now is silks. Yes. So um, I think that was my first passion within it. And I still love my silks. I, I have my own. They're, they're beautiful and yellow. Um, and they are two pieces of fabric or material. They look like curtains because they effectively are. They're normally sort of like six feet, eight feet wide pieces of material that you have two of them hanging down from the ceiling and you hang up. By, you, know, you climb up and down them. You wrap yourself up. You do nice shapes and then you do big dramatic drops to scare the audience you know, oh, no way. thrill them with the excitement of you dropping. And then you get caught like a centimetre from the ground. Yeah, yeah. So the, the the real skill is working out how to measure the fabric around you so that when you do the drop, it is a, as a you know, you have a good finish. So, so this, people... is, this is actually a fascinating point, which brings me to like the crux of what I wanted to talk to you about, which was what are the materials properties that you're looking for? from these fabrics because one i imagine you have to really know what the sort of extension of it is or what the stretch of it is 
with the impact of you unraveling and putting all your weight on it as you're dropping from the sky <laughs> yeah so so there's a load of different factors involved in this actually so um different parts of the world use different types of fabric so in america they normally use nylon and that's not very stretchy it's quite shiny and it's quite grippy but it's not stretchy at all so when you do drops on nylon your entire body weight just gets impacted into your body. And that's really kind of painful, especially if you're a guy like me. So I'm, I'm not, um, I know we're on a podcast, so you can't see me, but I'm, I'm not a small, lithe, young dancer type body shape. Um, I'm, I'm definitely on the, on the, I'm not, I'm not, I'm on the bigger side, if that makes sense. So, you know, I'm, I'm sort of 75 kilos, which is quite heavy for an aerialist. So when you drop, I drop a lot. I can produce sort of six, 700 newtons of force quite sorry kilonewtons of force if i drop hard and fast so i prefer to use more more stretchy silks so i use polyester which is the material that i'm going to be talking about today but there's also other materials out there that i've used including pongee which is like a hybrid material using both natural silk and um artificial polymers together but that is also not too stretchy but it's incredibly sticky so it's all about working out your stickiness, like how much you want, how much friction you want from the material compared to how much impact um, you want to put into the material as opposed to your body when you're dropping. But then I should say that when I do rope, rope has no stretchiness and I do drops on that and that you just put the force into your body that oh, way. That sounds painful. Yeah, 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 yeah. But um, <laughs> the, body's, the body's very good at stopping its pain response. And there's loads of different arguments about how your body stops doing that, but you eventually get used to the pain. Amazing. Inspiring. I love it. Um, so should we talk then about, have we mentioned all the different materials properties that you look for? We've got slipperiness. Uh, yeah, yeah. So there's, so the things that you're looking for is like the, the friction coefficient of the material. So, I mean, let's take polyester. It has got quite a low friction coefficient. It is because I don't know if you've got polyester leggings, you know, the artificial leggings, you know, oh, the yeah. Gymshark leggings. They are very, very slippery, but we can change that. We affect that by using a natural material rosin. So dried up tree sap is oh, what we yeah. use for that. So we put that all over our clothes, our body, and also the apparatus itself. So when that heats up and when it gets moist from the humidity in the air, that becomes a bit of a sticky glue, and that's what keeps you in place Ah, lot. okay. And you can even modify that even further by using, um, you can spray it with isopropanol or medical alcohol, and that just turns it into super glue. And it's incredible. <laughs> when you're really tired at the end of a training session, if you just put a bit of isopropanol on your hands, it just, just makes everything stick and you don't have to actually use your grip anymore. Was this a sort of secret finding that you had from, that you cooked up in the lab one night? No, no, no. <laughs> so I was actually just, just I, I've heard rumours about this trick, um, about using isopropanol and rosin, but I'd never used it before until I went to a rope training, like a rope workshop with this um, guy called Alex. Um, he came across from Australia and I was doing a rope workshop and it's five hours and he's just hardcore. There was a <laughs> lot of Jane Fonda type aerobics to start with and moving on for through. And by the end of it, I just couldn't grip, but he was like, no, you need to do this beat. You need to do this move. And then one of the other guys there just like, yeah, spray this on your hands. And I was like, is this the secret isopropanol? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, 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 do it, do it. And I was, it was just incredible. I could just hold on. I could do my one-handed grip after five hours with no issues. Nice. 
Um, so yeah, there's the, there's friction that we're looking for, but yeah, we're looking for stretchiness and it depends what you're doing. So some performers, they just do the pretty shapes. Um, I, 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 other people tell me I'm pretty, but I don't have a personal feeling that I'm pretty. So I definitely do a lot more dynamic work. So I throw myself about the equipment as opposed to making the nice, pretty shapes that lots of aerialists do. So yeah, I do drops and dynamic work. So I prefer having stretchy stuff that can support the large amount of force that I'll produce when I drop. Mm. So yeah, I go for a stretchy material. Uh, but eventually the stretch does wear out, I suppose. And so when you first get silks, they're so stretchy. Um, and it's just exhausting to climb up them. I've currently conditioned mine to the point where they're going to be all right. But probably in about six months' time, if we ever get back to training, I'll have to buy some new ones because they'll probably just rip instead of stretching. Oh, that's so interesting and simultaneously terrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing with um, fabrics, so they always rip in a controlled manner. So it's the same with ropes. So, so your rope will break, but it will break in a controlled manner and you won't plummet to your death. Okay. That's, uh, I find that very (laughs) difficult to imagine. I suppose, does it just um, sort of fracture or tear? Yeah, uh, in a a slow way, I don't know, in a kind of gradual way. Yeah, so apparently, well, when a rope breaks, apparently it's sort of like, because ropes are covered and then you've got an inner core and everything like that. Uh, So your outer outer core will go and then you'll probably drop 10, 15 centimetres, apparently, which apparently is terrifying. It's not happened to me yet, (laughs) but you won't plummet to your death. And yeah, with silks, they'll normally just sort of rip a little bit and then you'll know to just get off and buy some new ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the other questions I was thinking about in terms of materials, properties of these materials, is the sort of structure of them or the weave that they're woven or the, the pattern of the weave or the or the knit. Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've, I've looked at this a bit and some companies or some people use ripstop polyester so that's where they use double um when in the weave they put extra thick or you know doubly over um strands to it's like parachute material that mm. sort of thing where it all stop ripping but i researched the ones that i bought and they are not ripstop i looked at them under a microscope they are just a pretty standard jersey weave okay. so they are just so you buy them from a fabric wholesaler um, you can buy them from you know fancy professional circus stores but they're just um sub contractor you know subselling from fabric wholesalers anyway sure. so we just go straight to the source so i buy um yeah just 16 meters of t-shirt fabric um so it's normally used like football t-shirts things like that ah uh, right that yeah that kind of slippery shiny yeah. stuff yeah so just buy a 16 meters of that and then string it up in the ceiling nice anything more to say about materials properties before we move on uh, i don't i don't think so i cool. mean yeah, it's just it's just a spun thread cloth material. It's just it's a really interesting that it's all polymer chemistry behind it. Oh yeah, let's talk about the polymer chemistry. Well, so so it's it's interesting. So it originally like so polyesters were originally one of the candidates in the Crothers lab. I don't know whether you've heard of William Crothers. He's a oh he like, invented uh, nylon. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So so he's he he is the um, father of the polymer industry, the polymer fabrics. But actually he came or one of the scientists in his lab, um a Julian Hill, he discovered it first, um, but they could never get up to high enough molecular weight. Hello, this is Anna from the future. When we're talking about plastics, or to use the scientific word polymers, molecular weight refers to the size of the molecules. The higher the molecular weight, the bigger the molecule. As a rule of thumb, 
The bigger the molecules, the more sturdy the plastic and the higher its melting temperature. To produce a fabric with it, so they disbanded it in favour of nylon. And then nylon had some other um, properties, such as a much higher melting temperature, which is we should come back to in a second, actually, about silks. Uh, it's got a much higher melting temperature, so it's a much more stable product as a material. That, that's important. Um, that, well, that's just really interesting chemistry because nylon is a polyamide, so it's got hydrogen bonding in it, so it's got, it's got that higher melting temperature. But that's why they put that, you know, that's, this is all terrible speaking at the moment. But they focused on nylon and then painted that, developed that, and manufactured that during the war period and everything like that. Whereas it was then left, so polyesters, they knew about them being existed, but it was quite hard to get them to the high enough molecular weight to then be able to create the chips, which could then be melted and then spun into fibers, which could then be weaved. But then it was actually a company in the UK that did the science or the research. Uh, it was the Calico Printers Association of Manchester um, in the 1940s. They were studying it and they worked out how to actually get the molecular weight high enough to be able to do all the extrusion and weaving. And they made the very first polyester, polyester terephthalate. I hope I'm saying it correctly, otherwise my polymer professors will kill me. Um, but it was painted in and called uh, terraline. So that was in the 1940s that they made terraline mm, as a, a fabric. better known as PET to people who enjoy yeah. drinking water out of single-use plastic bottles. Well, that's exactly it. So it's also um, used as plastic packaging in our entire lives. So not only can it be used as a material for fabrics, but it is also used just continuously as single-use plastics. So... I think it's pretty amazing. Yeah, oh, 100%. But this period of the 1940s or kind of the interwar period was such an exciting time for plastics research and synthetics plastics research, and specifically for making fabrics like the silks that we're talking about, right? Um, yeah. Because it was during the war that um, really, well, we've all heard about rationing of food, but rationing of materials was such a big thing as well. And the main silk... Um, most of the silk in the world was coming from Japan at the time, but during the war, all of that um, supply sort of broke down. And so there was a real rush from America and the UK to try and create silk that was going to be synthetic, that they could make and they didn't have to buy over from Japan. Well, that's, you know, in the same lab that nylon was made, um, neoprene, the first artificial rubber was made as well, because I, I, I mean, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was that, you know, the most of the rubber came from Malaysia, and that was also inaccessible during the wartime period. So it's, it's this one lab in the DuPont um, company was producing all these different things. Right, yeah. And these were materials that were really central to the, you know, the war effort, like so many... Um, components were relied on or so many components were made from rubber and those rubber stocks were drying up so they really it was kind of a race to create similar materials to these natural plastics um of silk and rubber and what they came up with was things like polyester yeah i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I mean, we, I think we forget because plastics are so ubiquitous today. We forget that they're actually only about 100 years old. You know, the first synthetic plastic that we... Um, created was Bakelite in 1910 or no, mm. 1909 actually it was patented um, and so this was only you know 20-30 years after this whole category of materials was even discovered and then suddenly there was this flood of all these different kinds of plastics coming out of polymer labs um, it must have been a really exciting time to be involved in that yeah and you know and then in the 1960s the overwhelming amount of terrible fashions that came because of synthetic fabrics <laughs> that was an incredible segue <laughs> I'm but no you're, you're absolutely right i mean synthetic plastics totally took off because they had a lot of benefits mostly cost um, yeah so cheap yeah exactly um and so yeah then that, that brought us the wonderful Swinging 60s, 70s and 80s fashions. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was interesting because polyester, I mean, it was used a lot in the whole you never need to iron this shirt, rah, rah, rah. Right. But then it was also horribly staticky because at the time it wasn't ever mixed with cotton. These days it's, you know, for fashion things, it's normally mixed with cotton to make it a much nicer fabric to work with or they've got better quality weaving and different I'm going to say post-translational modification because I'm a biologist, but they do treat the fabrics in a way to make them more comfortable. Okay, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I don't I, There's probably a chemical word for that. That's uh, all right. Um, I wouldn't understand yeah. it if, even if you said it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so they were uncomfortable, but, you know, people were trying to make them fabrics, but then it wasn't until sort of the 80s and 90s with better, better processes that you could actually create the, you know, the athleisure that we get to enjoy today using polyester. Amazing. What about the history of aerial performance then, of aerial circus? So, well, so, um, oh, there's, it's, it's, again, it's controversial or it's mired in different opinions of when it sort of happened. But I think aerial silks was sort of first pioneered by Cirque du Soleil and uh, sort of in the late 80s, early 90s. I've forgotten the, the gentleman's name. There's a couple of artistic choreographers that really focused, that brought aerial silks to the fore at Cirque du Soleil. I think it was in the early 90s. And in fact, there, there's something known as the Cirque du Soleil um, audition routine. So many, many aerialists come from a dance background. So the Cirque du Soleil audition routine that everyone sort of learns as a bit of comedy value. Um, 
it was sort of made before lots of research and development happened in Arial, so understanding the wraps and the maneuvers. So there's like these this sequence of really generic moves that is known as the Cirque du Soleil audition piece, where you just sort of faff about and look pretty and look, try and look like a dancer that everyone learns. Um, I, it, it'd be much better to be able to show you this because it's really, really generic. Um, you just sort of smile a lot and show your teeth and your twinkly eyes. Is this um, sort of like the chopsticks or the Moonlight Sonata of the piano world? But yeah, in... yeah, yeah. No, that's <laughs> exactly form. what I'm trying to say, yeah. Um, <laughs> but since then, I think um, there's so many different people who have explored it. And so it's a really interesting use of um, oral history and vocabulary with silks because you learn moves by the location of where they were thought up, but also by the artist that made the move as well. So you'll like, so for example, you'll learn something about like the Bristol Salto or you'll know about the gnarly Russian climb. There's like a, there's a whole load of climbs that have come from Glasgow basically because someone just spent a lot of time working at all the different ways you can like the, like Glasgow hip lock climbs and everything like that. Nice. And then also depending on where you train, you have different words for the same move. So Americans call it a hip key. In the UK, we call it a hip lock. It's the same move, but for some reason people have taught it in a different way. And because there's no association of aerial, as in, you know, there's no general formula for how we like, there's no vocabulary that is set down people use all this different language and then you have to kind of like compare notes of when you're trying to learn moves and what you're doing with it. So I, I think basically it originated with Cirque du Soleil and then more and more people have started doing it within professional circus. And then more recently, there's been an explosion within the aerial fitness world. I think that's led from pole. So, you know, when pole fitness became an, a, a really big thing. Yeah. Many studios then start to offer aerial classes, which is really, really scary because the safety and the training is really low. Mm. And it's really interesting when you get a student who started their aerial training at a pole studio, then come to a professional circus and you go, no, we definitely don't do it like that. No, we definitely do it this way. And we always check our rigging. You know, there's lots of rigging issues, people falling out of ceilings, things like that, because mm. safety lots of these pole fitness studios didn't have the highest safety standards as it were and then as soon as you start suspending yourself from the ceiling and putting large loads onto poor ceiling beams there's been a lot of accidents mm. but i think that's what has led to the current massive boom in aerial in that lots of people like doing hoop uh, and lollipop and then they see that and then they go oh maybe i'll try silks and many of the students that i sort of teach and work with they they're all a lot of them come from a pole background and then they go oh we can try that in the air and a lot of the moves that i do on the rope they have very similar equivalents with the pole world mm. but doesn't have the sexual connotation because i'm doing it on a rope and not a pole and i think that's terrible i think it's really weird what's weird what Sorry, could you well, expand I on think, that? Well, yeah, no, so um, lots of, I mean, there's the general perception that pole fitness is a really sexualized field. Yeah. And I find that really depressing because I work with people who do pole fitness and they're just as strong, if not stronger than I am. And they are just as lyrical in their moves. And I, I don't personally find it a particularly sexualized thing. I obviously it is sexualized within a strip club gentleman club kind of environment mm. but you pole lyrical pole can be such a beautiful thing in front of an audience and it's such a weird mentality that if it's a 
a pole dancing pole just in a in a place that's a sexual thing but say if you then suspend that pole in the air and do flying pole it's a completely different thing even though the moves are the same does that make sense it does yeah i think it says much more about the person who's doing the gazing rather than the yeah yeah the sport yeah the perception <laughs> and in fact like I, I put in some grant applications this year which involved having lyrical pole performances within a circus thing and i worry that we were rejected from one of them because of the fact that it had lyrical pole in it because mm. they thought it was just going to be overly sexualized Ugh. when it was actually talking about spectrum and rainbows and colors nice. so anyway <laughs> yes because you've been colliding your two worlds haven't you and trying to incorporate these um, circus skills in science communication yeah no um that's been the most exciting and possibly the most successful grant um, well, the most successful number of grants I've had actually was to combine circus with science. And I've been really lucky recently. So I've had some money from the Biochemical Society for both my training and equipment and to write some work. And then the Performing Arts North provided me with some training space and some mentorship to get a whole load of different science communicators together who secretly circus to build a show, uh, which we did. But now because of lockdown, all those shows have been cancelled. Oh. <laughs> But we'll we'll come back bigger and better and stronger next year. Yeah, I mean, and then, all of that can can still apply next year, yeah, right? Yeah, and yeah, no, lots of the venues have been very happy to rebook us for next year when we all know what's going on in the festivals. And That's then I've awesome. also got a, a, a really nice sum of money from Festival of the Mind, which is a festival in Sheffield, which is to actually tell a story of my research through circus. So. Originally, that was going to be with the original circus science troupe, but because of conditions and delivery dates, we're moving to local performers and we're going to be telling stories in the air, doing it digitally with film as opposed to a live performance when we can. So that's going to be, it's been really exciting to try and tell my circus buddies what I do in the lab and try and tell the story of that. And then because I, I work at the nanoscale in biology, so they don't have to deal with um gravity there's lots of things interacting there's lots of movement and changing of shapes so hopefully it's not been an entirely literal translation but we should be able to have some quite amazing aerial dance of enzymology that's so awesome and it really just illustrates that there's no excuse anymore for people just standing up and giving a talk about their research oh God, if you're so not bringing your silks to my conference i don't want <laughs> yeah. you to come <laughs> i think i think this is why sometimes you know I don't, I, I don't, I've just been trying to do lots of different artworks within science communication for a while. Obviously, I'm very happy to stand up and give a talk at a conference. That's, yeah. you know, it's part of life. But <laughs> I've very much moved away from that in terms of doing installation art and building different things, finding stuff that I find exciting and challenging. Because as much as I love standing up and talking to an audience of school kids, I would also quite like putting my lycra on and jumping about on a rope. There's definitely space for both. <laughs> awesome. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Well, I think there's stuff about recycling. Um, oh, yeah. I don't know whether... So, because that, that is an exciting part of the fact that, um, you know, PET bottles can be recycled. And there's, there's different ways that you can go about that. You know, you can clean and then grind up and then melt down, which is the standard way. And actually, a lot of clothing these days is made from recycled PET bottles. Um 
there's also the the idea that you can do the chemical recycling way of things, which I still can't quite get my head around because it's not very energy efficient where you do thermolysis, where you're actually breaking down the PET back to its raw form. So rather than, you know, polymerizing an alcohol and a carboxylic acid, you use heat in an oxygen-free environment to break it down back to its original components so you can repolymerize it. And I know there are some companies who are trying to make that a viable process, but I think it just takes loads and loads of heat. And right. I don't know whether we're efficient enough in our grid yet. I, wrote, I remember seeing a talk that was actually led by, wasn't Mark your old boss or is your boss? Mark yeah, Medovnik. Mark Medovnik is still my boss at the, time, at the moment, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, he was like leading this... Um, it was a Cheltenham, actually, who was leading a panel about this. And I was sort of going, I don't understand the, the, the energy input-output here. I don't think it quite works. And I remember getting quite, um, uh, I, I'm going to say, drunk in the divan. <laughs> <laughs> being, being a little bit like, I don't understand that talk earlier. It was a little bit weird. It wasn't him saying it. It was some representative of a company that was saying it. But right. I felt Mark could possibly have challenged him a little bit more on the, the economics of the situation. Nice. So did you um, lean in with your pint to Mark in the pub and ask him these questions? Yeah, no, I think we both had a couple of Guinnesses <laughs> by that point and just went, right then. Brilliant. It was a classic moment of me getting drunk at Cheltenham. Amazing. That's why I don't drink at Cheltenham anymore, to be honest. Isn't that the how we met? Like... Oh, no, we met at Big Bang for yeah, doing yeah, similar thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one of the big problems with... Um, polyester fabric recycling is because these days it's mixed with other materials so other artificial fabrics or cotton fabrics is that it's really hard to recycle polyester clothes so that is an issue because it's you know there's these hybrid materials that you can't separate easily and therefore the economic cost of separating them is not really accessible for recycling at the moment yeah the but, more complicated you make your materials the less easy they are to recycle yeah and also um I suppose one of the major problems with polyester clothing is the fact that every time you wash them, microplastics are then washed into the environment and goes into the food chain yes. and everything like that, which is a huge crisis, which hopefully people are working towards. But one of the ways people are working towards this is it is a, a paper published on the 8th of April where the scientist has actually reported a new PET hydrolase enzyme that they'd artificially constructed. So they'd done some metagenesis and, and some um, evolutionary biology to make it a much more efficient enzyme. And they've actually got a really, really efficient enzyme that can break down polyesters now to, um, you know, get them back to the monomers to contribute to the circular economy. And they were saying like it could like produce ton you know break down tons and tons of material in a really effective way which i thought was just really exciting super exciting i mean i've been reading sort of headlines in on a similar vein for a few years you know bacteria found consuming certain plastics in landfill extracting the enzymes that allow them to do that so it was this new finding really yeah yeah something so that was much on, more efficient i think i, think, I mean I've, i'm it's been a little while since it's been a few weeks since I read the paper, but um, I think it was based on something along those one of those enzymes extracted from those bacteria. But then they did um, rapid evolutionary biology to it, so they just mutate it and screen it and try and find. So it's a process where you randomly mutate things. Actually, I think they did it in a natural, quite logical fashion how they did the mutations, but they were looking to modify the enzyme. So using genetic engineering to modify 
places within the enzyme to try and make it more efficient at binding and then helping it increase the speed of breaking things down. So it, it's an artificially engineered enzyme that's based on one of those original enzymes that was found. Oh, wow. So, so they took biology and made it better. Yeah. So there's an entire field that does exactly that, which is all very exciting. Oh, so clever. Yeah. So, yeah, so, I was I was interviewing some plastics chemists a little while ago and kind of asking them you know what's the future of plastic waste <laughs> broadly um, and yeah they were talking about this idea of getting these chemical enzymes that are really really effective at breaking down polymers and plastics and creating I guess sort of like um, you know creating a, a chemical plant that was based on these enzymes and our recycling factories instead of melting down the plastics actually breaking them down chemically in a big vat of enzyme <laughs> and going about it that way, but on a huge scale, which we're not seeing at the moment. No, I mean, so there's there's lots of um, technological issues there and sort of how do you keep the enzyme stable? How do you, you know, a lot of the time these enzymes are then attached to microplastic beads that hopefully don't get washed out into the ocean. But, you know, um, mm. <laughs> they, they have to be attached and then made stable and be able to go through multiple life cycles because as much as you like to think enzymes are catalysts and that they don't break down, they're just, you know, they help with the reaction and then come back and do another one. They're not the most stable things. You know, they can be really affected by light, um, oxygen, depending on what environment they used to be in. So there's commercializing enzymes into things like that is a much harder task than going, oh, look, I've got a nature paper that shows that I can break everything down. Oh, so science be... is always so much more complicated than you expect. Well, it's the engineering <laughs> that has to happen next. It's the okay. application. Oh, we can solve the problem. We just need engineers to then, you know, make it work in nice. the real world. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, from pole dancing to enzymes, I think we've covered a lot in the last half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for regaling us with your tales from the circus world. As I say, it's such a unique perspective on a material that we've never had on the podcast. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about it. No worries. So if people have enjoyed hearing about uh, aerial circus and in particular the use of silks, where can people find out more? So I suppose um, I normally put pictures of me doing aerial on my Instagram. So that's Punk Monk, P-U-N-K-M-O-N-K. It's a nickname that I got when I was a child and I've never <laughs> changed it. So, yeah, I do have a slightly more professional Twitter, which is just at May Adams. Nice. And you can find my website with all the different projects I do. So it's not just aerial, but art, science, installations, music. at um, www.drnayadams.com. But it's a DR, not a doctor, if that makes any sense. It does. Makes complete <laughs> yeah. sense. Brilliant. Amazing. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, been great fun. Thank you very much. So that was the legendary Dr. Nate Adams. Thanks so much to him for taking the time to come on the show. That's everything for this week. As always, I'd be hugely grateful if you have the time to rate and review the podcast. It really helps to let other people know that we exist who might enjoy it too. You can now support the podcast by giving a one-time donation if you feel so inclined. You can do that by following the link in the show notes or visiting supporter.acast.com forward slash handmade. We always love it when you say hi online. We're on Twitter at Realtalk, that's R-I-A-L talk, and on Instagram at handmadepod. If you prefer a long-form conversation, then you can email us at realtalkpodcast at jamal.com. 
As always, a huge thank you to Dave Shepard for our marvellous cover art and to Alex Lathbridge for the music mix. Next time, I'll be joined by stonemason Andrew Zeminski. So until then, thanks for joining us and I'll see you next time on Handmade. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.